Henry Adams Feck is an author, musician, and an assistant professor of communication arts at the University of Waterloo. He's produced two extraordinary albums. Livingston is his artificially intelligent folk songs of Canada record, which is a brilliant compilation of songs that are organized around the conceit or hoax, in a sense, of Livingston. This, as it's described on Henry's website, artificially intelligent digital organism capable of accessing the totality of the history of Canadian folk music and generating new hyper-authentic Canadian folk objects via algorithmic agents. Um, So this elaborate hoax is in fact an imaginative framework that Svek uses in order to write these really beautiful moving folk songs One of which, a song called Winter is Cold and Good, actually provided the theme music for Pretty Heady Stuff, so thanks Henry for that. His album, The CFL Sessions, is maybe most relevant to the conversation you're about to hear. Uh, This album is organized around a central idea, and again, even a kind of hoax. In this case, the story of Staunton R. Livingston's capturing of Canadian football players performing songs. Um, It's this idea that ties together an utterly hilarious and, again, often very moving song cycle in the form of the CFL sessions. It's this album and the series of live shows that Svek did to support it that forms the basis of the, the new novel that he's written. The book's called Life is Like Canadian Football and Other Authentic Folk Songs. I found it really interesting to hear him talk about the roadblocks in the process of altering the conceit around these songs in order to produce the right ingredients, as he puts it, for a good narrative. Uh, In our conversation, Henry goes into detail about why he thinks that hoaxes like the one this book kind of represents tend to prompt hostility in people and in publics, but how that hostility reflects the fact that you know hoaxes are also potentially critical engines for you know driving thought i related most of the ways that svek's book can both blithely shrug off and bitterly contest the normative constraints of academia Um, as it stands svek doesn't feel as though his most recent book should be required to present a sort of unified theory of authenticity, which is its main object of analysis. It's enough for the book to simply offer ideas about it. And in this sense, I think Svek's work in many ways models a a way that we can inject more joy, satire, and self-reflexivity into scholarly writing. Just a quick note before we get to the interview. You might notice that there are some keyboard and mouse noises, some clicking and scrolling throughout the episode. That's my fault. Um, And it's interesting in light of Henry's writing on the relationship between art and the technologies of recording uh, that capture it. You know, rather than dismissing the rough traces and sounds and textures that come from and through the material technologies we use to capture art, I like the way Henry's work shines a light on how essential those things are to our appreciation of, to quote his book, sound as overflowing plenitude, a revolutionary substance in and of itself. My initial like exposure, I guess, to your work came from uh, a mutual colleague and comrade, Matt McClellan, um, who oh. I think you met at the Banff Center. 
Yes. He invited me to uh, uh, one of uh, one of the shows that you were doing to support Livingston um, in particular mm-hmm. uh, at the what was the name of the venue in Halifax? It, it, it was. Yeah, uh, must have been Company House. Company House. That's right. And, uh, you know, I I enjoyed your performance so much. Um, you know, the songs are incredibly clever and catchy. And so I, from that point, I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) You know, what is he, what is his specific kind of mode of, you know, creating work within, I guess, the university, but just more broadly, um, you know, within Canadian culture, mass culture, like there's, and so, you know, uh, I was excited to see that you've now got, you know, two books under your belt, one, uh, a fairly you know, straightforward in a sense, though in many ways kind of unique academic study, uh, tactical media, mm-hmm. um, or, or rather American folk music as tactical media. And now um, the new book, Life is Like Canadian Football, um, which is this really difficult to pin down uh, book. Um, I, I guess I wanted to st- it's called Life is Like Canadian Football and Other Authentic Folk Songs. Um, you, you gave a, an interesting interview to Hamilton Review of Books, and uh, you talk about mm-hmm. liking the idea of a book that branches out and connects with the real world and other texts in the real world, even if the world it connects up with isn't necessarily uh, uh, existing or consistently actually existing, which I thought was like really interesting. The idea of a mm-hmm. of a world that isn't consistently actually existing so it's like flickering in and out of of reality mm-hmm. so i guess like my first question is about life is like canadian football the new book um i'm wondering how much of the book is true and of course you're interrogating that concept of authenticity how much of it is memoir uh and how self-conscious you are about the need to sort of preserve some of the formal aspects of the experiment or the hoax, if we want to call it that, in order to just keep, uh, keep it working as a questioning of what counts as authentic. Well, I think I said this in that, in that Hamilton piece, like the book starts from a different position than the, than the live show started from namely, you know, the, the, the book is labeled as fiction. And so, the reader presumably begins with that in mind. And if there is any movement, it it is, it is in the opposite direction towards wondering to what degree this or that event or reflection on the part of the narrator maybe is based in some kind of truth. I didn't feel responsibility. Like once we committed or I, I got used to the idea of labeling it as fiction some of my older worries and anxieties about doing a so-called hoax kind of dissipated writing it because once we decided, I mean, there were different, like this book began just as, as a document of the live show, or at least that's what I thought I was doing when I first started. And, uh, I thought it was going to be a lot easier than it ended up being because I thought I was like, well, I've got all these songs, you know, I've got all of this, these liner notes I've written for the albums. I've got this, you know, whatever length the live show was, an hour or more. And of course, there were different live shows from the CFL sessions to the Livingston stuff. And I thought I could just kind of write it all down and it would be a book. 
but I really found myself needing to um, expand on the world and stretch, you know, what, what was in the live show banter. And so just kind of a minor element of the act um, from my point of view needed to take center stage or else there wouldn't be much of a book to sink into. And so, um, and so as I was writing, I, I let go of any idea of fidelity to the live show, to reality. I mean, I, I thought of it as a novel as I was writing and I wasn't afraid to, A, to put myself in it, you know, from memory. Um, just to give you one example, uh, you know, like I actually did work as a translator for a Slovakian folk <laughs> symphony, which is in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, on the other hand, there is no basement in Library Archives Canada, as far as I am aware. Um, mm -hmm. And so both were fine. I liked the idea of, you know, the discovery of the CFL sessions happening in a basement and felt that I had creative license to make that happen, you know, as a, as a writer of fiction. I mean, I guess it'll be interesting. I don't know. Readers can can check the footnotes and see what's what's to be found and what's not to be found. Um, I don't know how important that is to enjoying the book. Um, I think the the feeling that readers are left with is that it is a mix and that it can be figured out if they wanted to, but maybe they don't need to and can just kind of wonder as they, you know, follow the story of this song collector. Yeah. And that comes through. Like, I have to say, like, the book is so fun. Um, mm. You know, it Thank really... You. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the humor that that uh, gives it its, uh, you know, originality. And if you had to classify it, it, it would be almost like a, a comedic autoethnography or something. But, you know, just calling mm -hmm. it a novel does give you a certain level of creative freedom, um, which I, I loved. I mean, it definitely, as you sort of suggest, like positions the reader and the reader's expectations mm -hmm. and does a lot more than just document certainly the live show. I love this idea in particular of trying to expand and stretch banter. Mm -hmm. That to me accounts in some ways for, um, you know, the, the, the kind of warmth and the, the virtuosity of the book mm. in a way um, is, is that it is aware of itself as a performance, mm -hmm. like addressing the reader I have some questions about like what influenced the kind of prose style, I guess, of the text. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in it as a kind of, um, you know, uh, a satirizing of academic discourse. I love this, this element of it. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact, the fact that you are, uh, you know, there are all the, all of these like really impressive takedowns of academia like i i you know related i related so much to like describing you know graduate school in the humanities as a psychotropic buffet of propositions like mm -hmm. you call it a, a pseudo ponzi scheme propped up by the malleability of young minds um you know this idea that it like it seeps into you academic professionalization um you know, I, I related well, so much to that. Well, the, the, you know, once I decided to approach it as a novel, I tried to think about like, what are the, what are the building blocks of, of narrative as opposed to performance art, which doesn't need some of the ingredients that good narratives need. And so obviously like 
antagonists <laughs> are often found in narratives mm-hmm. and struggle on the point of the character, which wasn't really in the live show. You know, the live show was just a like a photograph of this world. And so there wasn't really a lot of like temporal movement in the live show, you know, of the character. Um, it's like he's ex- he's collected the songs and they just kind of exist in this slice of time. Whereas I had to have him, which is actually, I was thinking about this as I was writing, like most scholarship is also uh, sort of time is evacuated from the scholarly process, right? It's not like uh, most academic papers don't begin with like, um, you know, an absence of knowledge. We don't really follow the journey of the researcher. It's like it's already happened and always already happened, like the discovery of the thesis or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I had to think about that, like, okay, what's the journey here? Um, who are the antagonists? Where might they be? There weren't really villains in the in the albums or in the live show. And so I didn't have to look very far <laughs> to find um, some funny candidates. Um, I also love campus novels too. And so I don't know, I guess it's just because I have spent so much time in universities, um, you know, like for the same reason that people that lived in New York at one time probably liked to watch like HBO's girls or whatever, you know, like there's a kind of like, Oh, that's my world. And so, um, but that aside, like the, the, the struggle against any institution, academia in particular, I thought nicely kind of riffed with some of the themes of the folklorist. Uh, I mean, most of the sort of early 20th century folklorists like Edith Folk and, and, and Alan Lomax in the middle of the 20th century, like they were sort of inside and outside of academia already, you know, like doing radio shows, but also, you know, the odd teaching the odd class or, you know, writing sort of scholarly books, but books that they hoped would be popular. So it's a tension that I think is in the history of folk song collecting anyway. And, um, I had the, like the comedy in the live show worked a bit differently. I mean, it was almost like sometimes I tended to play for, for laughs and in the context of a short thing, uh, you can, you can end up, I don't know, it could, it could tend towards jokiness in the live show. Whereas I felt like the comedy could, could be more pensive or sort of set it up over longer, you know, stretches, um, like the take it easy, for example, not to give it away, but you know, (laughs) that's kind of like the denouement of the book in a way. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm so close to it. And I did it so many times in the live show. I don't know that it's funny, but I feel like it must be funny for that to come where it does in the book. And like definitely finding the comedy worked. It was a bit of a different process than like trying to get a laugh before playing a song, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you've got so much more room uh, to experiment with, I think, mm-hmm. you know, like far more uh, uh, serious, rigorous, uh, you know, investigations of like different ideas uh, uh, than during banter. I mean, banter by its nature is this kind of like, you know, marginal peripheral thing. Mm-hmm. And and yet, you know, like in this text, you're using all of the room, it seems to me, of the page in order to... Uh, play with these ideas like the function of footnotes you know you acknowledge the fact that it is about establishing credibility and authority for the narrator in part through convention and citation is all about this kind of convention 
mm-hmm. but you're also like, as you say, kind of like, um, you have more room to experiment with the combination of just like merely mocking the often hilarious nature of academic discourse. And like also saying like, there's clearly value in this psychotropic buffet of of proposition. There's Mm -hmm. one particular moment in the book where like, you're clearly in this ambivalent place where like at the same time that you're, you know, wondering about your irrepressible personal preference for balladry so like on the one hand, you're talking about the folklorist right. preference for a certain style of, of making music. And then in the, same, in the same breath, you're asking the question, were my eyes and ears not too irredeemably contaminated by the patriarchal settler colonial nation state of Canada to conduct the complex sensitive work of folks on collection? Like, it's interesting to me how this often very tongue in cheek book also contains moments of like serious political engagement, like especially at this moment where the the bodies of hundreds of residential school children are being unearthed. It's just interesting to me that you can think about the constraints of method around just like preferring ballads. And then in the same breath, basically, or on the same page, also engage with this like really serious question of, of whether to accept settler, settler colonialism also, um, you know, constrains the folklorist's ability to have like a capacious, you know, collection of uh, uh, what's out there. This is also something that I, I, di- I hadn't really found a way to explore in the live show. Um, but here with the, the, the duration of a novel, you know, I could, I could, you know, the, the live show, like the tone sometimes tended towards pure satire, like a mighty wind or, or something like that, mm-hmm. where I'm sending up academia. And I, I mean, I love folk music and I actually love, I really, well, love is maybe the wrong word, but I've, I'm fascinated by, you know, the, the sort of classic folk song collectors. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by their energy and ambition and like the, the tirelessness of like an Alan Lomax, like mm. the guy worked a lot, you know, like just the energy that he exhibited in his, you know, his output is incredible to me and the commitment to this ideal of authenticity, although we can critique it, you know, with the theories that we've read that have been published since Lomax, you know, was, was working, we can critique him, but like his commitment is, is valuable in and of itself. And so in the book, my, my, you know, my, my complicated relationship, both to, to the idea of the folk and to academia can become more ambiguous and uh, less, less of a send up, I think. Mm. Although, yeah, you know, the, the, the satirical comedy is probably still in there. Um, I think I was able to kind of explore that the the attraction and the repulsion, you know, like mm-hmm. in in more detail, um, including like the the reservations I had about my own, you know, folk song collecting project, sort of in the wake of releasing it, like you know, thinking more about the 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 nation building aspects of of folk song collection and so on. I mean, that becomes just part of the content of of the novel, whereas it was kind of like implicit, but not explored really in the actual albums or, or live show. Yeah. Um, I definitely, you know, that's something I wanted to ask you about, right? Like, um, so you have this argument, it seems to me in both books, um, that, you know, authenticity is an incredibly fraught idea. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you say in, in the new or, or in tactical media, authenticity has often been wielded as a dehumanizing weapon, 
you know, you talk mm-hmm. about how, um, you know, you reference like the rise of far right populism and these authentic appeals to race, sex and nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're saying that we still need a way to use authenticity. It's not precisely an exhausted uh, concept. So you're like, you're dwelling in this uh, um, division, this conceptual division between like understanding this is a polluted term, but also understanding there also also need to be, be ways in which it is used non-instrumentally. And, and obviously like music is, it seems to me like the, uh, uh, you know, quintessential space where you can really start to like interrogate the question of authenticity, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Staples, for example, was asked, uh, during one of these like pitchfork media, uh, over or under videos, um, whether it is over or underrated, uh, to keep it real. Right. <laughs> um, and, and this is like, to me, directly connected to, what you're asking in the, in these books, like, what does it mean to be real? This mm-hmm. is the response that Staples gives that for many people, uh, a performative non-realness might be the most real comfortable state, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and to me, like, this is what you're saying in the book where you say that, you know, paradigms in which authenticity makes sense, do not have sufficiently sophisticated understandings of discourse, textuality, or mediation. Um, so like, you've got this really complex notion of performativity and authenticity that you see playing out in specific, um, you know, parts of the folk music tradition. Uh, I guess my question is like, why is Dylan for you, Bob Dylan, like the kind of, you know, uh, uh, necessary figure for thinking through, um, you know, the, the ultimately superficial and performative nature of authenticity, but then at the same time, the need to like preserve that, fraught notion of authenticity if that makes sense yeah i don't i don't know that he's necessary but i feel i have felt drawn to him in part because he's just taken up so much space in pop music Mm -hmm. fandom and and culture and a lot of the contradictions that i'm drawn to are just written all across the surface of his star text you know like on one Mm -hmm. hand this early rise to fame in which he cultivates a kind of political sincerity, right? Someone that cares about the world and is going to speak truth to power and so on. Um, that also involved building a character of a sort of, you know, young hobo type figure who's, you know, traveled in the circus and like, you know, learned all these songs from traveling circus workers and performers Hmm. and, so on one hand, there's this reading that many took away from his performances and records of, of like him meaning what he says and, and that having something to do with the political efficacy of his, you know, civil rights movement songs and, 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 you know, his, his protest songs and so on. On the other hand, from the start, there's this um, enjoyment clearly, uh, you know, in, in storytelling and invention and in self-invention. I mean, of course, Bob Dylan's not his name and Mm. he really has, I mean, it's, I'm going to sound like a Dylanologist or like a super fan, but it is fun. I I enjoy kind of revisiting his records and sort of tracing this constant re self-invention, which no matter what still does feel on some level as though there is some kind of authenticity there. Um, it's not the pure sincerity of the, you know, the, the protest singer that, that 
those audiences first felt. It's a different kind of authenticity. And uh, it's it's hyper-individualist as well. I mean, it's not... Um, I don't know that that's the kind of authenticity that the book endorses, but hmm. um, I think my the the char- the charismatic pull of Dylan has intrigued me. Do I mention him in the novel? I don't. I don't... No, and I mean, I actually kind of wanted to bring that up. It's it's rare in the novel um, that you reference songwriters by name. Hmm. There's a kind of obliqueness to your references to you know other artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really curious about that. Like, the, you know, there's this, um, like the specific section that I'm thinking of is the, the, I think concluding section or it's close to the end. It felt like uh, a climactic moment where you describe attending Sappy Fest in New Brunswick. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and there's this like experience of a surreal, like being on mushrooms and, you know, experiencing uh-huh. this kind of dislocation, um, mm-hmm. you know, but one that is authentic. Like there's, so there's all these like layers of exploring authenticity as something hallucinatory in that section. Um, but you seem to be referencing the arcade fire in, in that section. Like was the arcade fire, the surprise closer? Yeah. Well, they, they were, I actually debated a bit with, um, Andrew <laughs> invisible over whether or not, cause I say it happens on a year that it did not actually mm. happen. And, uh, my response was like, I don't know that this is the place where <laughs> we need to like cling to, you know, faithfulness Veracity. of yeah. of history. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that I, I did. I, I mean, I, I I went to Mount A and have been around Sappy many times, and I did go one time where Sappy Fest, uh, where where the 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 secret there was a secret act which was Arcade Fire. I don't know that it would. I I feel like m- mentioning that it was them. I just, I, I don't think I needed to mention that it was them. I don't think it matters who it was really. No. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm just, just trying not to date the book in a way, but, but, uh, but in terms of the other, you know, the, the Henry Adams Fex's knowledge of folklore is, is, is small, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like he, he's not working on folklore when he discovers the CFL sessions. And so there's also an element of, I mean, I don't know that you could fall for Livingston as a folk song collector if you were already disciplined into the ways of operating in the tradition, right? So he's kind of like a blank slate as far as as music goes, which was something that was in the live show too, I think. Like the 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 joke about Take It Easy was that he didn't even realize it was an eagle song in the uh in the uh in the live show. Whereas here he does know, but he he's kind of like rationalized it as irrelevant somehow yeah that's like this whole joke in the footnotes right like there are moments where you're um riffing on the kind of ridiculousness of of copyright itself um you know uh explaining why you've trademarked livingston and, and so on like it becomes uh this elaborate joke um and i you know i guess it it might be worthwhile to sort of um take a step back and think about like the notion of like a hoax itself. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, because like clearly I, like I see so much potential in the idea of a specific sort of potential that isn't always realized, um, Mm -hmm. in, you know, mocking, uh, something like academic discourse, which is so profoundly serious, 
Yeah. And like, so there are these really funny moments that I wanted to kind of underscore in the book where um, it seems like there's a pretty explicit attempt to do this. Like uh, my favorite moment is there's a, a chapter that ends with you saying any and all counter arguments will be anticipated, entertained and obliterated. <laughs> um, and to me, this was like a crucial example of like a comedic dismantling of the very self-serious and adversarial uh, nature of academic discourse, right? That it's like mm -hmm. always, it always has to be this kind of confrontational thing. So like, even as you're doing that, you're also trying to use these ideas in ways that are intelligible to an audience, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so there's this mm -hmm. interesting line that you're, you're treading. And I guess like to connect it to the notion of hoaxes, you know, um, there's been this debate over the legitimacy of, for example, this recent grievance studies hoax by yeah. Peter Bokassian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluckrose. You know, that was a hoax that targeted gender studies, identity yeah. politics, and I would say, like, just broadly issues of diversity and inclusion and scholarship. You know, that to me was a hoax that, um, you know, uh, went overboard in a certain sense or just picked a really strange target. But from your perspective, being someone who, you know, has written on this and, and who's produced these things, can hoaxes be a productive prompt, at least when they don't go overboard in specific political, ethical ways? Oh, yeah, I think I, I think so for sure. I mean, there are lots of different kinds of hoaxes. They're not always political or instructive. Like, I don't know. Have you ever looked at the 19th century hoaxes of like Poe and uh, Twain? You referenced them, but I don't know much about them. Yeah, like one was about like some big balloon. I could have the details wrong, but it was like basically like a science fictional science fictional scenario described as as though, you know, from the point of view of a, you know, a regular newspaper story. And like that seems almost just purely for fun, like for the writer's fun. And also, I guess there's a pleasure in being hoax, like once it's mm. revealed, you know, you can laugh about how gullible you are. There's a weird kind of perverse pleasure in, in that. But I, I can't really see any clear political or, you know, instructional moral function to that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the yes men, of course, have clear targets of their hoaxes. Um, I quite like the SoCal hoax, although it's probably not entirely fair. I think that the hoax you just mentioned is very unfair. Mm -hmm. Just the, 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 the political content is so misguided in that one that I don't think it works. Um, and I don't think it's very persuasive. Like, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's an interesting case. Um, the, you know, and the interesting aspect of that case is the fact that they actually succeeded in getting a number of these essays published. Right. Yeah. So like they, first of all, they put in so much work to, you know, expose, I guess, the, uh, I guess, emptiness of various forms of theory. Um, they put in so much work producing these essays some of the papers sounded kind of interesting to me. I got to be honest. Right. Like, what was one was about animals or something? I was like, oh, that sounds like a good yeah, paper. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, are some journals like rushed and like you know peer review could be stronger for sure? I mean, I guess that's a critique worth making, but it seemed too like yeah, too, too politically loaded in a misguided way to me. Um, it just seemed like an unfair mm -hmm. hoax. The SoCal one, I think SoCal, you know, at that time, there's definitely something to be said about jargon and in writing in the humanities. Um, mm -hmm. 
I kind of like the SoCal one, although I, I ultimately disagree with them. I think it's pretty funny. But I imagine that like mm-hmm. the targets of the SoCal critique were pretty, probably really mad to to have been hoaxed like that. Um, sure. But I think that the hoaxes tend to elicit hostility, you know. But I, yeah. I don't know that like I've I, I think I've way you know flip flopped on this. Like I've definitely described the projects as hoaxes, in part you know just hoping to get journalists interested in writing about you know a show or an album. But like, I'm, I'm pretty sure when I did the CFL stuff for the first time, like I didn't think it would come across as a hoax because I was on a stage and, you know, on a stage you can do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a space of invention and imagining. And, uh, but the, I think the, the fact that it, it worked as a hoax just goes to show you how strong the conventions of music are and of folk music, you know, if you've got an acoustic guitar in your hand, they already expect you to be operating in a certain way in terms of how you're using words, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has a certain structure of intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of, the, of life is like Canadian football. You're saying like collectors don't often reckon with their own mm-hmm. biases um, and you, you say very clearly that you want to account for your own curatorial biases, at least in relationship mm-hmm. to folk. Um, but it seems like at the same time, what you're doing is trying to be self-reflexive in the text itself about your own like rhetorical biases, right? Like there's this moment where you say, for rhetorical pur- purposes, I have preferred the classical eureka moment metaphor and have evoked it often <laughs> in my lectures and presentations. Um, you know, it's yeah. like just saying to the reader, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be doing this stuff that's going to sound a little bit like a TED talk, right. right, where I give you the aha moment and you digest it. <laughs> like I just, um, you know, I, I find that specific style to be like, um, you know, fittingly self-effacing. Um, but, at the, you know, at, at the same time as you're you're being self-effacing in certain ways, in saying like you're a humble scribe who modestly hopes the volumes motley mix of song scholarship and story will provoke. Um, you're also you, like using these really lavish descriptions of the material processes of recording mm-hmm. that is about it seeming seemingly like just drawing the reader in, mm-hmm. I guess, like, how did you, you talk about the development of the book and how you kind of found space for all of these different sorts of exploration. Like how did, the book's uh, uh, prose evolve in terms of like, you know, blending a sharply anti-capitalist critique with the kind of folksy rebelliousness with this almost like spiritual quality. Where did the inspiration come from? It, well, as I said, like the beginning of the writing of the book, at the beginning, I was thinking of just documenting the live shows. And like, to be honest, I was like, oh, I, I got a book here. Like, you know, I haven't really performed this that widely I'm proud of the songs and of the backstory, but like, um, you know, I, I didn't really tour it as much as I wish I would have, but I've done all the work. Like I just need to collect it and kind of like order it properly. And there's a book and, uh, it just was lifeless on the page, you know, like Hmm. without the live element, it, it, it was falling flat and there was too much. I mean, it was purely theoretical or pseudo theoretical, um, I mean, you can see this on the websites, especially of the Livingston one. Um, it's like in that context, it was just a bit, you know, like a piece of a larger puzzle. 
but making that piece, the entire work just was falling flat. And so there was one point, like I had already signed the contract with Invisible and they had already like given me feedback on a draft and I decided to just like scrap it and start over. And we pushed the um, publication date back and I just like began again. And that's when the the voice became more um, located in a in a in a character who was you know active in the story. Um, that's also when I started thinking more strongly about about narrative and you know movement of of a of a story. Um, what you mentioned about the the voice and the declaration in the intro about like wanting to. Mm-hmm. you know, convince the, or do something in the field that hasn't been done. I mean, that was one way I found to connect all of the other struggles and crises in the book. Like really the struggle is between the author and the reader and, uh, and, you know, hostile readers and potentially sympathetic readers, him trying to make what he sees as an argument, but which I had to not approach as an argument. I was really conscious of not wanting to write a kind of fake scholarly book um, where there's an argument, you know, like the way you're taught to write in academia mm-hmm. is hard to get away from. Um, I found, and I made it, it was really a focus for me. Like I, I don't need an argument about authenticity in this book. Like I think that there are different ideas about authenticity that one could make arguments about for readers. But like for me, I didn't want it to feel like, like a pet, you know, like a, uh, right. What's, you know, like a, a message book or something like that. And so focusing on character and on conflict, um, whether that conflict is between an advisor and, uh, you know, advisee or between different theoretical positions. Um, I started to think about it more as like a collage, um, or, a well, like, like an anthology, um, you know, the, the American folk song anthology or the anthology of American folk music, which is one of my favorite anthologies, you know, the Harry Smith collection really does feel like a crazy kaleidoscope because you've got just like all these different voices and different approaches to folk music. Some of the selections wouldn't have counted as folk music at the time. It's just like this, you know, mad collage of, of music. Um, and I, I, I feel like I like novels that do that too, you know, where you've got different characters and different voices, um, maybe bits of a novel in the novel. Um, you know, I love pale fire and, and, um, house of leaves Mm -hmm. and, and other kind of metatextual fiction where Borges, I, I was reading a lot when I was trying to figure out this this book and how to approach it and uh yeah the, i i just thought that different voices and different kinds of texts could all kind of help tell the story although i was admittedly committed to the songs like that was something that was sort of non-negotiable and i didn't even really want to edit them mm-hmm. even though i'm sure that they could be edited um I, that was just kind of like something that i was stuck with almost like a game. Like how am I, I going to turn these songs into a novel <laughs> that tells a story? So that's kind of how I, that's how I turned the corner away from it feeling like just a, a dry send up of a scholarly 
set of scholarly papers, finding that voice of the narrator was, was really, Mm. I I started to have a lot of fun, whereas it felt like a bit of a drag previously. Like I I felt like it wasn't working and I was, you know, like maybe it would have become a book eventually, but it just wasn't really exciting. But once, once I found the voice of the narrator, it started to feel really fun. And the footnotes started to cohere. That was another thing that was tricky for me at the start. Like what is the purpose of the footnotes? But yeah, that was the the biggest piece to find the narrator. Um, and I gotta say, like it it reads like such a um, you know energetic text. I think for that reason. And I guess I you know I wanted to ask about that question of inspiration, which comes up itself, like in in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at one point you imagine statements as oak logs in a cabin that you're both making and inhabiting you also there's this like really breathless section where you describe a burst of creative or intellectual mania Mm -hmm. this almost feeling of narcosis that comes from what you call the buzz and hum of war against a particular problem and i think it's like nonetheless for the you know the love of that kind of mania that we continue pursuing inspiration, even when it's super frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, I wanted to ask you about the ways that you think metaphorically in this book about inspiration. And I guess like more specifically, how the central and title metaphor of Canadian football um, can be used to think through inspiration, right? Like mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace has this essay, you know, Roger Federer as religious experience, I think is what it's called, where he talks about like, kinesthetic motion, you know, the repetition required to become adept at a backhand down a baseline uh, and like comparing that to, in a sense, the rigor required to write songs or academic studies. You know, there's a moment in the book where you say the phenomenological experience of that which athletes, musicians, writers, and scientists often refer to as the zone is what you were kind of experiencing in this moment of like working away at a difficult problem. Mm -hmm. Do you see I guess sport as an adequate metaphor for that for that feeling of like inspiration. Well, football is a tough game to achieve creativity within in the sense that it's so um scripted compared to say basketball or soccer. Um hmm. and the the pleasure comes from the scriptedness and from the coordination of the um, movements of the, at least the, uh, from the perspective of offense, you know, like the, they're running their routes. Everything's kind of tied to this design, this blueprint that the coach has put into place. It's all about execution. Execution. Exactly. It's not quite the same on defense, but you know, so on one hand, I think that that form of performance and creativity or per- creativity is the wrong word, but that kind of, um, experience sort of is, is, is sort of similar to ju- well just the collectivity the collective aspect of football you know feeling yourself to be part of a machine is not unlike um you know being part of a band or being part you know like i i played football in in university just my first year and after that i started doing student theater and um I remember just thinking like how similar it was to football, you know, like you practice, you rehearse, you get close to your teammates or your, you know, cast members, you're kind of like operating within, you know, the, under the the control of the director 
you, you're putting on a costume, you know, mm-hmm. you've got game day and, uh, it all felt very, very similar. I mean, the body is less, um, well, the demands of the body are different, but aside from that, it felt like sort of like a- analogous experience, uh, to be on stage in a play. And so I think that football is like that form of creativity. Maybe scholarship is similar. We're all kind of like collectively collaborating on something, but you know, the, the football players in the book are not just football players, right? They're also singer songwriters essentially. And so after hours, they have this whole other kind of creativity that they get to try on. Um, I think like, if if the book has a position on creativity, I think it's ultimately a pragmatist one, which is that, you know, there are different kinds of creativity and yeah. they might work differently in different situations. I think that the, you know, the, the, I myself talking about Dylan, I'm definitely drawn to a romantic notion of creativity, but as a, someone trained, you know, in media studies, and critical theory and so on. I definitely, you know, I'm suspicious of that form of creativity also as ideological, but it, you know, its powers are strong and we like the idea of this, the soul, you know, thinker, uh, artist sort of toiling away um, on their own. But at the same time, I mean, you really do have to be alone to write. Um, you don't have to be alone to be in a band. You should be with others really, but to, to write a book, does require a certain amount of solitude, even if you're building on the ideas of others. So it's, it's complicated. And, um, I mean, Marx is a solitary genius. I think, you know, like he is, he is a romantic hero in a way, even though his, his ideas and the content of his books is so, so much pointing to different forms of sociality and, and collaboration. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. I think it really gets to the heart of, you know, your work in general, but, you know, just personally why I really uh, gravitate to your work is that you are, you know, trying to occupy this seemingly untenable position between, and I think you kind of sum it up really succinctly in the book, a discursive semiotic lens as opposed to an authentic celebratory one. Mm. Like there's this interesting moment in Life's Like Canadian Football uh, where, you know, you're, I think you're talking about the conflict between the uh, the mentor and the mentee, mm-hmm. the supervisor and the student, um, you know, and, and in, in the context of this book, the character is, you know, trending in the direction of, of an authentic celebratory mode, mm-hmm. but still has to maintain, in part for reasons of just academic domination, a sense of the value of that discursive semiotic lens. And then it seems to me the goal of tactical media is to bring these t- two seemingly separate things into contact with one another and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, I also just kind of connect with the, the framework for understanding music that it provides, right? Like it's not to say that sound is not as Livingston understands it an overflowing imminent plenitude, a revolutionary substance in and of itself. It's not to like, just do away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's to also include some description of how technology mediates in these, these relationships to not like mm-hmm. do away with that. Um, that, that would be untenable, right. To just ignore the material fact of like technology, you know, governing, you know, the emergence of a certain kind of like revolutionary spirit or discourse through art. Right. 
Yeah, I guess he's caught, but he's caught between different different um, paradigms of evaluating, you know, music or mm-hmm. even just sound. Like he's and he needs to find his own way in the end, um, which I guess we all have to do in in grad school or just in life. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to decide what you know when you're going through undergrad, even you know, it's about sort of deciding which texts are going to be useful to you you know, which, which you're going to continue to struggle with, how you're going to see the world and in what combinations. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that idea of combinations of providing uh, or, or producing, curating an archive um, that, that is like so crucial. I, I think in life is like Canadian football, mm-hmm. just given the fact that, you know, some of these fo- footnotes aren't precisely necessary. Some of them are even kind of jokes uh, themselves, you know, like mm-hmm. footnoting, a truism is a joke in a sense, like, you know, footnoting just like an aphorism by like referencing Karl Marx, I think is, I, I, I picked up on the humor there. Um, but this notion of like, yeah, plugging, plugging texts into one another. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk about this, right? Like creating a network of texts, mm-hmm. plugging in is really, you know, the central metaphor of the book in a sense, like, and you, uh, and I'm thinking more particularly about, um, American folk music is tactical media. You say the American folk revival was plugged in all along. The folk and the machine are actually often one and the same. But what's interesting, the kind of leap that you make in that book, throughout the book, um, uh, uh, is that this this recognition of the uh, the fact that material technology represents a condition of possibility for artistic expression can be applied to our current, you know, Web 3.0 digital networks. You say mm-hmm. that, um, you know, folk revivalists offer a, quote, refreshingly optimistic articulation of making do with the tools and networks ready at hand. Yeah. I see this as a kind of like uh, emergent strain within cultural studies right now um, to mm-hmm. admit that everything is like contaminated by commerce, uh, but then try and recuperate something emancipatory from it. Like Legacy Russell has this book, Glitch Feminism, which is about using social media as a source of revolutionary kind of rearticulation of the self. Mackenzie Wark, who you quote uh, fairly frequently, has also this like mm-hmm. dialectical sense of the effects of a rising information society. So I guess my, my question here is like, how do you, do you see your experiments working alongside this strain within, I think, Marxism and cultural studies that doesn't just try to castigate technology but sort of liberate it like is there a techno utopian politics within your writing that is running alongside the work of like the zero feminist manifesto or aaron bastani or these kind of people well definitely Deleuze and guattari were a big influence on me when i was mm-hmm. let's see i can't i i believe i read them for the first time around 2006 and so i would have been already and I, I, I think the first thing I read was Chaosmosis by Guattari. It was in, um, I was in a class with Nick Dyer Witherford, a grad class on, it was for his book, Games of Empire. And, um, and so mm-hmm. he was writing that at the time with Greg Deputer. And also we were reading like Empire I had never read. Uh, and I was reading that for the first time. And then Deleuze and Guattari also was the big discovery for me there. And I, I read Anti-Oedipus and, and A Thousand Plateaus soon after. And 
I feel like my my turn to folk music happened sort of at the same time. And so I'm thinking about, I guess, what would soon be called accelerationism and this idea that everything is a machine, you know, that kind of modernist strand in Deleuze and Guattari that you need to sort of push further rather than retreat or find an outside is something that I, I guess just more aesthetically even than politically, I found kind of enticing. And it felt like something that was both convergent with and also foreign to folk music and singer songwriter sort of conventions and so on. Hmm. Um, but it, it, in terms of how the novel fits with all that, you know, I don't really know that, I mean, are scholars going to read this book? I don't really know, to be honest, who its audience is, if there is an audience for it. I mean, I guess this is something you shouldn't say when you've got a book that just came out, but <laughs> I guess it's, I, I have kind of a wait and see attitude about like whether people will find it because it is a hard book to describe and it's a hard book to sort of like, I, I, I feel like you're my ideal reader, Scott, but like, I don't know <laughs> how many of you are out there, you know, willing to put in the work and follow the wormholes and so on. But, but uh, I think that another way of doing this book could have been to justify it as some kind of critical ficto criticism and uh, to claim it as a scholarly text, even though it is fictional, but it just felt a lot less fun to me than, than just writing a novel. And um, you know, I, it might find its way to scholars, but it, 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 it feels less encumbered by academia in its current material form and uh I guess we'll see what happens. I don't know, but I'm definitely aware of all the theorists you're mentioning and, and yeah. Um, love Mackenzie work and, and, you know, Nick Dyer Witherford was my dissertation advisor and he's, he was super influential on my thinking, uh, his combination in particular of autonomous Marxism and political economy and, and critical theory. Um, you know, my pragmatism, I don't know if Nick would describe himself as a pragmatist, but, I found in his books and in his approach to teaching a, a kind of pragmatism that um, I think shows up in the book too. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Dyer Witterford's most recent, I think most recent book, uh, Inhuman Power, uh, which is, yeah. you know, a co-authored text with uh, three other folks is I think an interesting example of that kind of uh, a, a certain pragmatism, right? Like, uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, you reference in, um, I think it's in Life is Like Canadian Football, the, yeah, you talk about Watson and the emergence of general AI. I think I cite Nick in there. I cite that yeah. book in Human Power. You do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, as as like kind of a big big deal, right? So, and, and the whole point yeah. really of Inhuman Power is that uh, the pursuit of general AI or, or you know, in uh, uh, a, a a now inconceivable form of like artificial intelligence um, is not inherently wrong. Like that, that technological mm -hmm. goal uh, is not somehow an inherently like insidious one. It's about the monopolization of the like means of production, you know? And so this mm -hmm. is, it made me think of the moment in life's like Canadian football, where you say, please do not hate the player, dear reader of the present text, hate solely the game as Karl Marx was perhaps the first to urge. Um, you know, to me, like I am, you're right. Like the, the ideal audience in the sense that like, I find moments like that. So 
rewarding in a sense like to read <laughs> such a, like an unknowingly self-reflexively verbose uh but still somehow serious reference to yeah um yeah the the fundamental na- you know like the the determining nature of the structure over agency uh was was incredible and like there are lots of moments like this in the in in both books really um you know like you there's a section in life's like canadian football where you talk about victory and you say victory on any field mm-hmm. must be attributed to the complex interpenetration of you know economic processes political mach- machinations privilege oppression and exploitation and the chaotic responses of individual players so it kind of brings mm-hmm. us back to what you were saying about how football is largely scripted, mm-hmm. but there are kind of moments where something seemingly random takes place mm-hmm. uh, in the context of an otherwise pretty mechanical sport. Mm-hmm. Um, in thinking about victory in particular, like, uh, you know, like what, when you were writing this book, why did you, I mean, was it the joke of just referencing again, you know, sport and this kind of like, uh, air sats binary of like winners and losers, or was it also about trying to think about, uh, victory as a political, uh, uh, horizon? Yeah. Well, for, in terms of the writing, I mean, victory became, uh, along with the game of football, a way for me to find a through line through these different sets of songs. Um, you know, the, the struggle of the character is against, I mean, he wants to be free, right? He wants to be authentic and it's, it's impossible to do that. And so, Mm. you know, the language of, of battle and the language of, of hostility and, and warfare becomes in part his, his, the way that he quests after authenticity within academia. Of course, that language is already contaminated by influences and by structure, but it's kind of like, like his, his tendency towards hostility, which really is counter to the Livingstonian hippie sort of togetherness of the folk, um, is, is his path to individuality, I suppose, which is something that he both quests towards and, uh, away from in terms of his thinking. So, um, you know, the, the political content of victory, yeah, is like something that the character thinks about, but I don't know how deeply he reflects on his own entrapment by, like, he's kind of comically unaware of the deeper ways in which he's ensnared by structure, I think, which is ironic given that he's, stu- he's actually studying it. But I think that many mm-hmm. academics are like, hilariously oblivious to things that should, they should be more critical of, you know, like it's, it's a common, common problem in the culture. I would agree. Um, you know, there's a, <laughs> a need to maintain, yeah, the appearance of, of like omniscience or something that makes it very, very difficult to yeah. take a position of intellectual humility for sure. Or to be like critical of authoritarianism and like be like a huge asshole to your students or colleagues. Mm. I mean, there are, yeah, all sorts of hilarious performative contradictions. Definitely, you know, it's another way in which I'm like the ideal audience for the book is that I definitely related to the experience of having a supervisor's like super ego imposed on me Mm -hmm. and the production of, as you put it in the book, hot shame, 
as a result of, <laughs> you know, not read, having read the right text or having not had your, like these kind of like nebulous, you know, things of like, not your thinking, not having developed enough or whatever. Like there are these, mm-hmm. uh, as you put it in the book again, like, uh, bureaucratic rituals that are the products of madness that make you wary mm-hmm. of your, of yourself, you know? So mm-hmm. I think, uh, to be honest, this book should be like required reading for graduate students in the humanities <laughs> because it, it describes that would be awesome. <laughs> you know, as you as you say, this this scheme propped up by the malleability of young minds like that sounds cynical, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. From my experience, um, you know, the hierarchies that exist within the university, even there, you have really invisibilized hierarchies um, and protocols that, that I think are invisibilized for a very specific reason. Um, you know, I was just reading Catherine McKittrick's book, Dear Science, and this is sort of what she talks about, you know, like that um, citation, as we know it in the academy, uh, is often about, you know, this form of like enclosure and consolidation. And, and mm-hmm. you talk about this in, your, in the relationship between the narrator and Bronley, right? Uh, trying to decode all of these texts that are assigned to you and their specific relevance to what you want to write is like one of the puzzles that you have to solve in order to graduate. What McKittrick is saying is that we can actually have um, a, a far more equitable system of citation and, you know, the will to remain unplugged, which is how you describe the character of Lewin Davis, this will mm-hmm. to remain unplugged um, is actually mm-hmm. just not pragmatic, um, you know, and that we can, we can make a more functional uh, system of, of even knowledge production in the academy mm-hmm. and make it less about the originality of your own contribution. I definitely subscribe to that idea of, of citation. I mean, the, in the book, the there there's lots going on in the footnotes, but like one of the things that's also going on is like my attempt to faithfully sort of draw readers to actual texts that have informed different ideas that I'm working with. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I love citing and, and, you know, I tend to oversight probably, but it's, it's a matter of just wanting to kind of like give props, you know, like, yeah. And, and yeah, opening onto, uh, or, or like trying to open up the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I had a couple more questions. Like one of the questions that I had is, was, is very specific. It's about whether or not you have seen and or enjoyed Bo Burnham's Netflix special, uh, inside, Yes, I, I have seen it and I enjoyed it very much. So it just, I mean, like, it seemed like the kind of uh, comedy that, in a sense, you do. I mean, mm. uh, and, you know, in particular, the one song, uh, I think, you know, the Internet is titled That Funny Feeling mm-hmm. in the special is a folk song that at the same time is using a projector and an effects machine to, like, simulate a folksy wooded environment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of sites that cover pop culture have called that song the emotional center of the special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a sense, it does feel like its most authentic moment. Um, you know, how did you maybe see Burnham as using uh, performance as a means of like conceptualizing relatability, you know, authenticity in the internet age specifically? I I was particularly drawn to and maybe even inspired by like the willingness he shows in that piece to kind of just work with the tools he has around. Um, 
like he and he reflects on this a bit at the beginning like he needs to like teach himself how to do lighting i mean he doesn't really it sounds like he didn't really know how to use a lot of that gear and so it's it's a remarkable like i guess it's not really professional level and it it shows like it it comes across as kind of sub professional and that's part of the appeal like it feels authentic quote unquote in that you know it's like a, a diy sort of dirty um punk sort of project mm-hmm. but the rigor that he demonstrates uh in terms of like just working within the paradigm and within the toolbox that he has around him there are no i could imagine another bo burnham in an alternative reality who's like got these jokes and ideas and who just like says oh, I'll, I'll just park them and you know when covid's over i'm gonna use that in a show or use that in a show and he just like wills himself to make something you know um at the same time that most of us were just like watching netflix you <laughs> know and like well doing our best of course i mean everyone had and continues to have different situations not to, not to make light of covid but but i was impressed with his his determination to make this to finish this this work is all i mean yeah i mean it it's very funny and it's certainly poignant um and it it's interesting that like the thing that you say you respect about the special is just the like will the willfulness of it it's similar mm-hmm. in a way to your respect for like Lomax, you know, mm-hmm. lugging a 300 pound dictaphone in mm-hmm. order to record uh, this music. I mean, like the energy, the commitment to a certain notion of authenticity um, maybe is what constitutes authenticity itself. Like it's mm-hmm. that struggling toward using the tools that you have available um, that, you know, defines authenticity. It's not purely a performance, right? Right. Or if it is, it's it's fundamentally this embodied uh, performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, again, on the subject of like the connection here between like Burnham's performance and Lomax, um, you know, you say in American folk music uh, as tactical media that Lomax, quote, never seemed to discard his initial fascination with performance, which exceeded the notes, words, and more recently, the digital bits that might be used to encode it. So like, and I, th- I think that's part of what gets translated in, in Burnham's special is that sense of the immediacy of performance, even though, of course, it's like highly mediated. And he's actually like mm-hmm. showing you the levels of mediation. It's like for that reason that it's actually a more fascinating performance. So I, I think I could do a, a good Sveckian reading of Inside, uh, <laughs> you know. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I feel I must is uh, the question of the donaire. <laughs> and oh, you're, I don't know about on, uh, ongoing uh, interest in the donaire, but like there is this uh, reference to Dartmouth, where I live, yeah. in, um, in the new book. Uh, you, you say that you captured a version of Down by Your Shady Harbor in Dartmouth, <laughs> and you reference, yeah. you reference the milky maritime donaire wrap, which <laughs> does not really make it sound appetizing, um, but it is kind of a milky uh, food product. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, was claiming that the song was captured in Dartmouth a pretext for referring to our famous donaires? I think I've always referred to it as a Dartmouth song. You know, I wrote that song. I was uh, one summer, um, I was the artist in residence at, uh, it used to be called Robert Street Social Center. I feel like they've changed their name and are called something else now, Zine, Zine Archive or something like that. But they had this mm-hmm. shed 
and the artists and residents would live in there. And I was there, I forget how long exactly, like quite a while, a few weeks, maybe a month. And um, yeah, I was writing the Folk Songs with Canada Now thing. And I wrote that song there. And uh, I was just thinking about like, you know, the the coast and the Nova Scotia. And and so it's it, that, that song I've always said I got in in uh in dartmouth i did you know the one note from lee nash my editor at one point was like that the the anecdotes about the context of recording were really working and so that was Hmm. just one other place i i I thought to kind of give some local flavor and sort of you know sketch out (laughs) that those 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 events i guess for the readers so Maybe it's it's also an example of me going for the easy joke, but not that it's a joke per se. But but uh, no, there's something funny about the down arrow that you got it. There is. <laughs> it is inexplicable. I like the down arrow a lot. I, it's been a while. It's been too long. I bet. I uh, I even had a radio show when I was in in um, Fredericton with Mike Nace, and we had a down arrow radio show, and. Uh, we had the theme music for the show, which found its way eventually into the game I made about the donair, was a sound field recording of Mike and I eating donairs, which was so awful to like. It was so gross. Yeah, and you can if you play Donair Academy, you can hear it. I know. I forget which part of the game we put it into, but but it's just awful. Yeah, it's <laughs> but it's so funny. I mean, there is something very funny about this, uh, this, yeah, this cultural marker of the donaire. You know, the symbols we use to define ourselves mm-hmm. don't often make sense. Yeah, but you know, like I, I, I love Donaire Academy. I love the uh, <laughs> the coverage that it received. You know, and the just the appreciation. For like that Windows 95, <laughs> uh, especially the sound of the game. Yeah, It's funny you mentioned the the field recording because just, you know, every aspect of the sound design for that game is so beautifully nostalgic for me. Yeah, but the Donaire is so just excessive, you know, the sound of just the squishing yeah. and the, oh, it's, it's, it's delicious and horrible to, to listen to or probably also see unless you're, you're the one eating it. Yeah, it's not a pleasant sight. I remember I once uh, purchased an ill-fated Donair at a Mooseheads game. Uh, that was a terrible decision because you're eating a milky maritime wrap at a hockey game mm. with no table in front of you. And it's a drippy product. You might as well just go into the bathroom and eat it over the sink yeah. because you're soon going to be in there washing your hands. Yeah. Um, it's been so fun talking to you, Henry. Uh, I'm glad we actually were able to sit down and do it. Thanks so much for your time and also for your, your close attention to the books. It feels really good to, to have you out there making this excellent podcast and, and to be included in it is a real honor. So I, I thank you a lot for your time.